Chapter 11, Part 1 of History of Philosophy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of Philosophy by William Turner. Chapter 11 Aristotle. The Socratic doctrine of concepts introduced into philosophy the notion of the universal. No sooner, however, had Socrates formulated the doctrine of universal concepts than the cynics arose denying that anything exists except the individual. Thus it at once became necessary to define the true relation between the universal and the individual. This was the aim of Plato's theory of ideas, in which the relation was explained by deriving the individual, in reality and in knowledge, from the universal. Aristotle, judging that Plato's explanation was a failure, opened up the problem once more, and endeavored to solve it by deriving the universal, in reality and in knowledge, from the individual. The continuity of philosophic thought is, therefore, to be traced from Socrates through Plato to Aristotle, as if the imperfect Socratic and Platonic schools had not existed. Life Aristotle was born at Stagira, a seaport town of the colony of Chalcidice in Macedonia, in the year 384 BC. His father, Nicomachus, was physician to King Amentus of Macedon, and if, as is probable, the profession of medicine was long hereditary in the family, we may suppose that this circumstance was not without its influence in determining Aristotle's predilection for natural science. When he was eighteen years old, Aristotle went to Athens, where for twenty years he followed the lectures of Plato. Many stories are told concerning the strained relations between the aged teacher and his illustrious scholar, stories which, however, are without any foundation. There may indeed have been differences of opinion between master and pupil, but there was evidently no open breach of friendship, and in later years, Aristotle continued to count himself among the Platonic disciples associated with Xenocrates on terms of intimate friendship, and showed in every way that his respect for his teacher was not lessened by the divergence of their philosophical opinions. Many of the tales told to Aristotle's discredit are traced to Epicurus and the Epicureans, calumniators by profession, grubbers of gossip as Teller calls them. And it is to be regretted that writers like St. Gregory Nazianzen and Justin Martyr were misled by statements which were manifestly made with a hostile purpose. We are saved, therefore, in supposing that Aristotle was a diligent and attentive pupil, and that he did not give expression to his criticism of Plato's theories until after he had listened to everything that Plato had to say in explanation and defense of his views. After Plato's death, Aristotle repaired in company with Xenocrates to the court of Hermias, lord of Atarnius, whose sister or niece, Pythias, he married. In 343 he was summoned by Philip of Macedon to become the tutor of Alexander, who was then in his thirteenth year. The influence which he exercised on the mind of the future conqueror is described in Plutarch's Alexander. When Alexander departed on his Asiatic campaign, 
Aristotle returned to Athens. This was about the year 335. It is possible that, as Gellius says, Aristotle had, during his former residence at Athens, given lessons in rhetoric. It is certain that now, for the first time, he opened a school of philosophy. He taught in a gymnasium called the Lyceum, discoursing with his favorite pupils while strolling up and down the shaded walks around the gymnasium of Apollo, whence the name Peripatetics, from Peripateo. Through the generosity of his royal pupil, Aristotle was enabled to purchase a large collection of books and to pursue his investigations of nature under the most favorable circumstances. His writings prove how fully he availed himself of these advantages. He became thoroughly acquainted with the speculations of his predecessors and neglected no opportunity of conducting, either personally or through the observations of others, a systematic study of natural phenomena. Towards the end of Alexander's life, the relations between the philosopher and the great commander became somewhat strained. Still, so completely was Aristotle identified in the minds of the Athenians with the Macedonian party, that after Alexander's death he was obliged to flee from Athens. The charge which was made the pretense of his expulsion from the city was the stereotyped one of impiety, to which charge Aristotle disdained to answer, saying, as the tradition is, that he would not give the Athenians an opportunity of offending a second time against philosophy. Accordingly, he left the city in 323, repairing to Chalcis in Euboea. There he died in the year 322, a few months before the death of Demosthenes. There is absolutely no foundation for the fables narrated by so many ancient writers and copied by some of the early fathers that he died by poison, or that he committed suicide by throwing himself into the Euboean Sea because he could not explain the tides. Aristotle's character Eusebius, in his Preparatio Evangelica 15.2, enumerates and refutes the accusations which were brought against Aristotle's personal character, quoting from Aristocles, a peripatetic of the 1st century B.C. These accusations are practically the same as those which gained currency among the enemies and detractors of Plato, and are equally devoid of foundation. From Aristotle's writings, from fragments of his letters, from his will, as well as from the reliable accounts of his life, we are enabled to form a tolerably complete picture of his personal character. Noble, high-minded, thoroughly earnest, devoted to truth, courteous to his opponents, faithful to his friends, kind towards his slaves, he did not fall far short of the ideal moral life which he sketched in his ethical treatises. Compared with Plato, he exhibited greater universality of taste. He was not an Athenian. In a certain sense, he was not a Greek at all. He exhibited in his character some of that cosmopolitanism which afterwards became a trait of the ideal philosopher. Aristotle's writings. It is quite beyond dispute that some of the works which Aristotle compiled or composed have been lost. Thus, for example, the Anatomai, containing anatomical charts, the Perifuton, the existing treatise De Plantis is by Theophrastus, the Politeiai, 
a collection of constitutions of states, the portion which treats of the constitution of Athens has been discovered in recent years, and the dialogues are among the lost works. It is equally certain that many portions of the collected works of Aristotle, as we now possess them, are of doubtful authenticity, while it is possible that a still larger number of books or portions of books are little more than lecture notes amplified by the pupils who edited them. It is well, for example, for the student of the metaphysics to know that of the fourteen books which compose it, the first, third, fourth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth constitute the work as begun but not finished by Aristotle. Of the remaining books, the second and one half of the eleventh are pronounced spurious, while the rest are independent treatises which were not intended to form part of the work on first philosophy. Without entering into the more minute questions of authenticity, we may accept the following arrangement of Aristotle's works with their Latin titles. Logical Treatises Constituting the Organon 1. Categoria 2. De Interpretazione 3. Analytica Priora 4. Analytica Posteriora 5. Topica 6. De Sophisticis Elenchis. These were first included under the title of Organon in Byzantine times. Metaphysical Treatise The work entitled Metata Physica, or at least a portion of it, was styled by Aristotle, Prote Philosophia. Its present title is probably due to the place which it occupied after the physical treatises in the collection edited by Andronicus of Rhodes about 70 BC. Physical Treatises 1. Physica Auscultatio, or Physica 2. De Cello 3. De Generatione et Corruzione 4. Meteorologica 5. Historia Animalium 6. De Generatione Animalium 7. De Partibus Animalium Psychological Treatises 1. De Anima 2. De Sensu et Sensibili 3. De Memoria et Reminiscentia 4. De Vita et Morte 5. De Longitudine et Brevitate Vitae and other minor works. Ethical Treatises 1. Etica Nicomachia 2. Politica The Eudemian Ethics is the work of Eudemus, although it is probable that it was intended as a recension of an Aristotelian treatise. Rhetorical and Poetical Treatises 1. De Poetica 2. Territorica. These are spurious in parts. Gellius speaks of a twofold class of Aristotelian writings the exoteric, which were intended for the general public, and the acroatic, which were intended for those only who were versed in the phraseology and modes of thought of the school. All the extant works belong to the latter class. The story of the fate of Aristotle's works 
as narrated by Strabo and repeated with the addition of a few details by Plutarch, is regarded as reliable. It tells how the library of Aristotle fell into the hands of Theophrastus, by whom it was bequeathed to Nellius of Skepsis. After the death of Nellius, the manuscripts were hidden in a cellar, where they remained for almost two centuries. When Athens was captured by the Romans in 84 BC, the library was carried to Rome by Sulla. At Rome, a grammarian named Tyrannian secured several copies, thus enabling Andronicus of Rhodes to collect the treatises and publish them. It must not, however, be inferred that the manuscripts hidden in the cellar for 200 years were the only existing copy of Aristotle's works, or that during all those years the peripatetic philosophers were without a copy of the works of Aristotle. The subsequent history of the Corpus Aristotelium and the story of the Syriac, Arabian, and Latin translations belong to the history of medieval philosophy. Aristotle's Philosophy General Character and Division Aristotle's concept of philosophy agrees in the main with that of Plato. Philosophy is the science of the universal essence of that which is actual. Aristotle is, however, more inclined than Plato was to attach a theoretical value to philosophy. The difference between the two philosophers is still greater in their respective notions of philosophic method. Aristotle does not begin with the universal and reason down to the particular. On the contrary, he starts with the particular data of experience and reasons up to the universal essence. His method is inductive as well as deductive. Consequently, he is more consistent than Plato in including the natural sciences in philosophy and considering them part of the body of philosophic doctrine. In fact, Aristotle makes philosophy to be coextensive with scientific knowledge. Quote, All science, dianoia, is either practical, poetical, or theoretical. End quote. By practical science, he means politics and ethics. Under the head poetic, poietike, he includes not only the philosophy of poetry, but also the knowledge of other imitative arts, while by theoretical philosophy, he understands physics, mathematics, and metaphysics. Metaphysics is philosophy in the stricter sense of the word. It is the knowledge of immaterial being, or of being in the highest degree of abstraction, perichorista kai akineta. It is the pinnacle of all knowledge, the theological science. In this classification, logic has no place, being apparently regarded as a science preparatory to philosophy. Our study of Aristotle's philosophy will therefore include uppercase A, logic, uppercase B, theoretical philosophy, including lowercase a, metaphysics, lowercase b, physics, lowercase c, mathematics, uppercase c, practical philosophy, uppercase d, poetical philosophy. Uppercase a, logic, including theory of knowledge. Aristotle does not employ the word logic in the modern meaning of the term. The science which we call logic 
and of which he is rightly considered the founder, was known to him as analytic. The organon, as the body of logical doctrine was styled by the later peripatetics, consists of six parts or treatises. 1. The Categoria. In the first of his logical treatises, Aristotle gives his classification or enumeration of the highest classes, categories, into which all concepts, and consequently all real things, are divided. They are substance, quantity, quality, relation, action, passion, place, time, situation, and habitus. He intimates that these are intended as classes of things expressed by isolated words, ta aneu simploces legomena, that is to say, by words which do not form part of a proposition. They are to be distinguished, therefore, from the predicables, or classes of the possible relations in which the predicate of a proposition may stand to the subject. The predicables are definition, horos, genus, difference, property, and accident. There can be no reasonable doubt as to the originality of the Aristotelian arrangement of categories. It is true that there is a remote analogy between the categories and the distinctions of the grammarian, but the analogy can be explained without supposing that Aristotle expressly intended to conform his categories to the grammatical divisions of words. It is also true that Aristotle does not always enumerate the categories in the same manner. 2. The De Interpretazione In the second of the logical treatises, Aristotle takes up the study of the proposition and the judgment. He distinguishes the different kinds of propositions and treats of their opposition and conversion. This portion of his work forms the core of modern logical teaching. 3. The Analytica Priora contains the treatise on reasoning, deductive and inductive. In his doctrine of the syllogism, Aristotle admits only three figures. The syllogism he teaches is based on the law of contradiction and the law of excluded middle. He mentions three rules of the syllogism. Induction, epagoge, he defines as reasoning from the particular to the general, and though the syllogism which proceeds from the general to the particular is more cogent in itself, induction is, for us, easier to understand. The only kind of induction admitted by Aristotle is complete induction. 4. In the Analytica Posteriora, Aristotle takes up the study of demonstration, apodexis. True demonstration, as indeed all true scientific knowledge, deals with the universal and necessary causes of things. Consequently, all true demonstration consists in showing causes, and the middle term in a demonstration must therefore express a cause. Not all truths, however, are capable of demonstration. The first principles of a science cannot be demonstrated in that science, and principles which are first, absolutely, are indemonstrable. They belong not to reason, but to intellect, nous. To the class of indemonstrable truths belong also truths of immediate experience.
5. The topica has for subject matter the dialectical or problematic syllogism, which differs from demonstration in this that its conclusions are not certain but merely probable. They belong to opinion rather than to scientific knowledge. The topica also treats of the predicables. 6. The treatise De Sophisticis Elenchis contains Aristotle's study of fallacies or sophisms. It contains also an attack on the sophists and their methods. Before we proceed to explain Aristotle's metaphysical doctrines, it is necessary to take up the principles of his theory of knowledge, as we find them in the Analytica Posteriora and elsewhere in his logical and metaphysical treatises. Theory of Knowledge Nowhere does the contrast between the philosophy of Plato and that of Aristotle appear so clearly as in their theories of knowledge. 1. Plato makes experience to be merely the occasion of scientific knowledge. Aristotle regards experience as the true source and true cause of all our knowledge, intellectual as well as sensible. 2. Plato begins with the universal idea and attempts to descend to the particular phenomenon. Aristotle, while he recognizes that there is no science of the individual as such, hedipisteme ton catholo, maintains nevertheless that our knowledge of the individual precedes our knowledge of the universal, ecton cathecastagarto catholo. 3. Plato hypostatized the universal, attributing to it a separate existence. This, according to Aristotle, is to reduce the universal to a useless form, for if the universal exists apart from the individual, there can be no transition from a knowledge of the one to a knowledge of the other. The universal, Aristotle teaches, is not apart from individual things. 4. Finally, according to Plato, the universal, as it exists apart from phenomena, is a full-blown universal, endowed with the formal character of universality. According to Aristotle, the formal aspect of universality is conferred by the mind, and therefore the universal as such does not exist in individual things, but in the mind alone. This is the only intelligible interpretation of such passages as Metaphysics 3, 4, 999 and De Anima 2, 5, 417, in which Aristotle maintains that the individual alone exists and that the universal is somehow, pose, in the mind. Aristotle's theory of knowledge, as is evident from the four principles just explained, recognizes two fundamental attributes of intellectual knowledge its essential dependence on sense-knowledge, and its equally essential superiority to sense-knowledge. Aristotle is as careful to avoid sensism on the one hand, as he is to escape idealism on the other. For though he admits that all knowledge begins with experience, he contends that intellectual thought, noesis, is concerned with the universal, or intelligible, noeton while sense-knowledge has for its object the individual, the sense-perceived, ton. 
The distinction of objects is made the basis and ground of a distinction of faculties and of kinds of knowledge. If then there is a distinction between sense knowledge and thought, and if all knowledge begins with sense knowledge, how do we rise from the region of sense to that of intellect? Aristotle answers by distinguishing first and second substance. The first substance, husia prote, is the individual, which can neither exist in another nor be predicated of another. Second substance is the universal, which as such does not exist in another but may be predicated of another. In the individual substance we distinguish on closer examination two elements, the hypokaminon, or undetermined, determinable substratum, the matter, hule, and the determining principle, or form, eidos, by which the substance is made to be what it is. The essential nature, therefore, the unalterable essence corresponding to the concept, the object consequently of intellectual knowledge, is the form. Matter, it is true, is part of the essential nature, but it is, as it were, the constant factor, always the same and of itself undifferentiated. It enters into a definition as materia communis, and when we designate the form of an object, implying the presence of matter in its general concepts, we have answered the question, what is that object? The form, then, considered apart from the matter, is the essence of the object as far as intellectual knowledge is concerned. For intellectual knowledge has for its object the universal. And since matter is the principle of individuation, and form the principle of specification, the conclusion of the inquiry as to the object of intellectual knowledge is that matter and the individual qualities arising from matter belong to sense knowledge, while the form alone, which is the universal, belongs to intellectual knowledge. Returning now to the question, how do we rise from the region of sense to the region of intellect? The object of sense knowledge, we repeat, is the whole, the concrete individual substance. Thought, penetrating through the sense qualities, reaches the form, or quiddity, lying at the core of the substance, and this form, considered apart from the material conditions in which it is immersed, is the proper object of intellectual knowledge. Thus, the acquisition of scientific knowledge is a true development of sense knowledge into intellectual knowledge, if by development is understood the process by which, under the agency of the intellect, the potentially intelligible elements of sense knowledge are brought out into actual intelligibility. Aristotle himself describes the process as one of induction, epagoge, or abstraction, aphairesis. Uppercase B. Theoretical philosophy. Lowercase a. Metaphysics. In the foregoing account of Aristotle's theory of knowledge, it has been found necessary to mention form, matter, and substance, notions which properly belong to this division of his philosophy. 1. Definition of metaphysics. Metaphysics, or first philosophy, is the science of being as being. 
Other sciences have to do with the proximate causes and principles of being, and therefore with being in its lower determinations. Metaphysics considers being as such in its highest or most general determinations, and consequently it is concerned with the highest or ultimate causes. Accordingly, on metaphysics devolves the task of considering the axioms of all sciences insofar as these axioms are laws of all existence. For this reason it is that in the metaphysics Aristotle takes up the explanation and defense of the law of contradiction. 2. Negative teaching. Before proceeding to answer the problem of metaphysics, what are the principles of being, Aristotle passes in review the answers given by his predecessors. He not only recounts the doctrines and opinions of the pre-Socratic philosophers, thereby adding to his many titles that of founder of the history of philosophy, but he also points out what seemed to him to be the shortcomings and imperfections of each school or system. His criticism of Plato's theory of ideas is deserving of careful study, because it is an unprejudiced examination of a great system of thought by one who was unusually well equipped for the task, and also because it is the most natural and intelligible introduction to the positive portion of Aristotle's metaphysics, in which he expounds his own views. Both Plato and Aristotle maintain that scientific knowledge is concerned with the universal. Compare Socratic doctrine of concepts. They agree in teaching that the world of sense is subject to change, and that we must go beyond it to find the world of ideas. Here, however, they part company. Plato places the world of ideas, the region of scientific knowledge, outside phenomena. Aristotle places it in the sensible objects themselves. It is therefore against the doctrine of a separate world of ideas that all Aristotle's criticism of Plato's theory is directed. Lowercase a. In the first place, Aristotle contends that the Platonic theory of ideas is wholly barren. The ideas were intended to explain how things came to be and how they came to be known, but they cannot be principles of being, since they are not existent in things, and they cannot be principles of knowledge, since they exist apart from and have no intelligible relation to the things to be known. To suppose that we know things better by adding to the world of our experience the world of ideas is as absurd as to imagine that we can count better by multiplying the numbers to be counted. In a word, the ideas are a meaningless duplication of sensible objects. Lowercase b. In the next place, Aristotle recognizes in the theory of ideas an attempt at solving the problem of motion and change. Indeed, since the ideas are the only reality, they must contain the principle of change, for change is a reality. But Plato, by separating the ideas from the world of phenomena, and by insisting on the static rather than on the dynamic phase of the ideas, precludes all possibility of accounting for change by means of the ideas. Lowercase c. Moreover, Aristotle finds several contradictions in the Platonic theory. 
is not satisfied with the Platonic doctrine of community between the idea and the phenomenon. For if the participation of the idea by the phenomenon is anything more than a mere figure of speech, if there is really part of the idea in the phenomenon, there must be a prototype on which this participation is modeled. If such a prototype exists, there is, for example, a tritos anthropos, in addition to the absolute idea of man and the man who exists in the world of phenomena. The significant fact is that Plato at one time describes the participation as methexis, in another as mimesis, and ends by leaving it unexplained. Lowercase d. Finally, the reason why Plato introduced the doctrine of ideas was because scientific knowledge must have for its object something other than the phenomenon. Now, scientific knowledge has an object if ideas exist. The validity of scientific knowledge does not require that the idea should exist apart from the phenomenon itself. 3. Positive teaching. Metaphysics, as has been said, is the inquiry into the highest principles of being. A principle, arche, is that by which a thing is or is known. The first problem of metaphysics is, therefore, to determine the relation between actuality and potentiality, the first principles of being in the order of determination or differentiation. Actuality, entelechia, energia, is perfection. Potentiality, dynamis, is the capability of perfection. The former is the determining principle of being, the latter is of itself indeterminate. Actuality and potentiality are above all categories. They are found in all beings with the exception of one with a capital O, whose being is all actuality. In created beings, then, as we should say, there is a mixture of potency and actuality. This mixture is, so to speak, the highest metaphysical formula under which are included the compositions of matter and form, substance and accident, the soul and its faculties, active and passive intellect, etc. The dualism of actual and potential pervades the metaphysics, physics, psychology, and even the logic of Aristotle. Still, potency and actuality are principles of being in its metaphysical determinations. In the physical order, there enter into the constitution of concrete beings four other principles called causes, ITI. A cause is defined as that which in any way influences the production of something. It is therefore a principle in the order of physical determination. The classes of causes are four, matter, hule, form, eidos, or morphe, efficient cause, to kinetikon, and final cause, to huhenika. Of these, matter and form are intrinsic constituents of being, while efficient and final causes are extrinsic principles. Nevertheless, these latter are true causes inasmuch as the effect depends on them. Matter, or material cause, is that out of which being is made. Bronze, for example, is the material cause of the statue. Matter is the substratum, hypokaimenon, 
indeterminate but capable of determination. It is the receptacle, dekticon, of becoming and decay. It can neither exist nor be known without form. In a word, it is potency. Matter, in the condition of absolute potentiality, is called first matter, hule prote, that is, matter without any form. Second matter is matter in the condition of relative potentiality. Second matter possesses a form, but because of its capability of further determination, it is in potency to receive other forms. Form, or formal cause, is that into which a thing is made. It is the principle of determination overcoming the indeterminateness of matter. Without it, matter cannot exist. It is actuality. The Aristotelian notion of form, like the Platonic notion of idea, was intended as a protest against the skepticism of the Sophists and the pan-metabolism of the Heracliteans. Form is the object of intellectual knowledge, the unalterable essence of things, which remains unchanged amid the fluctuations of accidental qualities. Like the idea, the form is the plentitude of actual being, for while matter is a reality, it is real merely as a potency. There is, however, a radical difference between the form and the idea. The form exists in individual beings. The idea exists apart from them. Aristotle merely distinguished matter and form. Plato not only distinguished, but also separated the idea from the phenomenon. The union of matter and form constitutes the individual or concrete substance, to synolon, usia prote. From matter arise the imperfections, limitations, and individuating qualities. From form come the essential, unalterable attributes, the specific nature of the substance. Matter, then, being presupposed as the common substratum of material existence, a substance is constituted in its essential nature by the form. Hence it is that Aristotle identifies the form with the essence, the quiddity, to ti hen enai, the universal nature of a substance. Form is a second substance, usie deutera, which, while it cannot inhere in another as in a subject, may, on account of its universality, be predicated of many. It would, however, be a serious mistake to represent Aristotle as reducing all reality to form, and ending, as Plato had begun, with the doctrine of monism. For matter, in its generic concept, enters into the definition of the specific nature, and while it is not an actual, it is a real principle of being. Aristotle further develops his theory of the relation between matter and form by teaching that matter is destined to receive form. It tends towards its form with something akin to desire, for the absence of form is not mere negation, it is privation, steresis. Aristotle, however, explains that matter is not pure privation. It is a positive something which, of its nature, is disposed to become determined by means of form. Efficient cause is the third principle of being. 
It is defined as that by which, that is, by the agency of which, the effect is produced. Ultimately, it is form considered as operative, for no agent can act except by virtue of the form, which is the principle of its action as well as of its being. Hence the scholastic adage, agere sequitur esse. Moreover, all action is motion, kinesis, and motion is defined as the passing from potency to actuality. He tu dynamei ontos entelechia he toyuton. This identification of action with motion and the definition of motion in terms of the actual and potential lead at once to a conclusion which is at first sight startling in its universality, that all natural processes are processes of development, and that action merely brings out latent possibilities by bringing into actuality those perfections which were already contained as potencies in the matter. This generalization, it may be remarked, is in perfect harmony with modern physical principles, as, for example, with the law of the conservation of energy. Aristotle, it is true, does not enter into the question of quantitative relations between the potential and the actual. But the higher the human mind rises in its inquiries, the less attention it pays to questions of quantitative equivalence, and the more importance it attaches to the general notion of internal development. Final cause, the fourth principle of being, that, on account of which the effect is produced, is, in a certain sense, the most important of all the causes. It not only determines whether the agent shall act, but it also determines the mode and manner of the action and the measure of the effect produced, so that, if we could know the motive or end of an action, we should be in possession of a most fruitful source of knowledge concerning the result of that action. The final cause, like the efficient, is, in ultimate analysis, identical with form. It is the form of the effect, presented in intention and considered as a motive, inasmuch as by its desirability it impels the agent to act. By the reduction of efficient and final causes to formal cause, the ultimate principles of finite being are reduced to two, matter and form. These are the two intrinsic essential constituents of the individual concrete object, matter being the source of indeterminateness, potency and imperfection, while form is the source of specific determination, actuality and perfection. End of chapter 11, part 1.